may be seated. I love listening to you sing. It's a privilege to gather with you today. If you're a guest with us, my name is Raymond Johnson. I serve as one of the pastors here. We're so glad you've chosen to worship with us today. If you have your Bible, I invite you to turn with me to the Gospel of John. As you're turning there, I'm just going to highlight one of the things that maybe you've noticed in our service for a while. Uh, at the end of Scripture readings, we often say, this is the word of the Lord. Now, one of the kind of call and response ways that that is used is somebody says, this is the word of the Lord, and the congregation responds by saying, thanks be to God. In many Baptist churches, people don't do that because that feels too Catholic for them. But friends, I can assure you that that is never a reason to not do something. Uh, we are reminding ourselves in the, uh, these services that this is God's word, and we should be thankful that we have a copy of God's word that we can read and understand and hear and learn from on Sunday mornings. So we're going to practice today when I'm done reading in just a moment. I'm going to say, this is the word of the Lord, and you're going to respond, amen, and that doesn't make you Catholic. So our time together this morning will be greatly helped and far more enjoyable if you follow along in a copy of God's word. We're going to be in John 4. You should be able to find it around page 888 of a Bible provided underneath the seat in front of you or near you today. If you don't have a copy of God's word that you can call your own, we would love for all of those to vanish. So feel free to take one of those. You can study that. We'd love for you to have a copy of God's word that you can read and learn from. I'm going to begin reading in John 4, verse 1, in just a moment. And as you're turning there, I just want to situate us again in this section of John's gospel. At the end of chapter 2, we have reminded ourselves for the last few weeks that John writes a very strange phrase. Chapter 2, verse 23. Now, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. We would expect that. He's doing signs. People believe. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them. Because he knew all people. Now you can imagine, you would think, oh great, an entourage, I'm going to entrust myself to people. But it should be a little strange for us. A following of people, Jesus does not entrust himself to them. Because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man. For he himself knew what was in man. John is helping us see that Jesus knows exactly what people are like. And then he gives us a series of different people that are interacting with Jesus in John's gospel. Nicodemus, the great teacher of Israel, someone that everyone would have thought is put together, is definitely an insider, is doing the religious thing the right way. But John teaches us, at least at this point in the gospel narrative, is not one of God's people. Then John the Baptist, the final prophet of the old covenant, who we would expect would be upset that Jesus is starting to get all of the glory and attention. But John points away from himself and is thankful that he has a part to play, but understands that Jesus alone is the point. And then for the last two weeks, we've been looking at the Samaritan woman, an inbred Jew, a half-Gentile, someone whose life was falling apart at every level, from the relational level to the social level, societally, everything's wrong. Everybody would think this person is on the outside of God's kingdom, but John is showing us that this type of person is the person who's on the way inside in God's kingdom. And if we don't have her, if we're reading through John's gospel, we would wrongly think Jesus only loves people who have their lives together, people who are law-abiding citizens like Nicodemus, people who are righteous and upstanding like John the Baptist. But John startles us when he says, these people whose lives are a wreck are the very people Jesus loves and Jesus came to save. Last time, we left her on her way back into town after a conversation with Jesus at Jacob's well. John writes, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, 
And he speaks to us with the same authority as if Jesus Christ himself were here speaking to us today. Chapter 4, verse 1. Now when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee. And he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, sir, you have nothing to draw water with and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Jesus said to her, go call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you are right in saying that you have no husband. For you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshiped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me. The hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming. And it's now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Just then his disciples came back. They marveled that he was talking with a woman, but no one said, what do you seek? Or why are you talking with her? So the woman left her water jar and went away into town and said to the people, come, see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? They went out of the town and were coming to him. Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him saying, rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. So the disciples said to one another, has anyone brought him something to eat? Jesus said to them, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Do you not say there are yet four months, then comes the harvest? Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. Already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life so that sower and reaper may rejoice together. For here the saying holds true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you did not labor. Others have labored, and you have entered into their labor. Many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. 
So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days. And many more believed because of his word. They said to the woman, it is no longer because of what you have said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. This is the word of the Lord and of God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for your word. Your word is truth. It is a light unto our feet. It is a lamp unto our path. And Father, we ask now in Jesus' name that you would help us. We thank you, Father, for your boundless compassions towards us. You have been merciful towards us in Christ. You've been merciful to gather us this morning. You've been merciful to give us your word. We do give you thanks for giving us a copy of your word in our language that we can read and study and hear freely preached. Father, we ask now that you would help us as we study it so that we might be able to see more clearly who this Christ is, the Savior of the world. And Father, we pray for all who are here who are not yet Christians, for any who might listen to this sermon one day who are not yet Christians, that their eyes would be opened, that their ears would be opened, that they might see and hear and behold the Savior of the world, Jesus the Christ of God. And we ask all of this in his precious and great name. Amen. Amen. Charles Spurgeon, the famous Baptist preacher, once told the story of a convert in his church, a man who had come to saving faith and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. The man, according to Spurgeon, was a common, ordinary working man. He was a coal miner, untaught, uneducated. He didn't know very much about the Bible. He showed up to Spurgeon's church one Sunday and heard him preach the gospel very simply, as Spurgeon often did and was well known to do, and the man became a Christian. Following the service, the man went to find Spurgeon to tell him the good news. Thankful for what he was hearing, Spurgeon wanted to hear more. So a few weeks later, when they were together, Spurgeon asked him to tell him what was different about his life now that he was a Christian. The man replied, I was a wreck. My life was an absolute wreck. I was an alcoholic. I was a coal miner with very little money. All of the money that I did have, I was spending on liquor. It was so bad, the man said that at one point to sustain my addiction, I actually had to sell off our family's furniture. So for some time, my wife and our children have been sleeping on the floor. But that, thankfully, is not the case anymore. It's changing. Spurgeon listened attentively. He counseled the man pastorally. And months continued to pass by. And one of the things that he noticed is that the man continued to profess to be a Christian. And he also kept coming to church. And he continued to grow in the Christian faith. And then he eventually stopped drinking entirely. And eventually he became a productive member of their local church. His life completely changed. One day Spurgeon asked him what his colleagues in the coal mines thought of all of this change, of his newfound faith in Jesus. The man said, it's been hard. They like to ridicule me and make fun of me because my life is now so different. They think that I've gone soft or I've gone mad on one occasion, one of the coal miners even asked me, you don't believe all that stuff, do you? To which I asked, what do you mean? He said, well, surely a sensible man can't believe all of that rubbish about miracles and Jesus turning water into wine. But I told him, man, I'm a new Christian. I don't know much about the Bible yet, so I don't know if Jesus turned water into wine, but I do know that in my house he's turned liquor into furniture, and that's enough for me to believe in him. Now, most likely, few of us have such an amusing story to share from our conversion. But when we look closely at our lives, 
That's exactly what Jesus has done for every person in this room who has genuinely placed their faith in him. He has changed your life completely, just like he did for the Samaritan woman. And verse 26 is the moment of change for this woman, the turning point of the passage. And it is the words of Jesus that actually transform and change her life. Look at verse 25. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Before verse 26, she has a historical reference from her childhood that Messiah is coming and this Jesus who she's interacting with reminds her of this Messiah. He goes from just being a Jew to someone who's prophetic to someone who's this Messiah-like figure. But after verse 26, something happened to the woman. She's no longer in a theological debate with Jesus. She's not arguing with him to try to sidestep the conversation anymore. She's not trying to hide her position or what's going on in her life any longer. She does not take retreat into her race or ethnicity and show that she's different as a Samaritan and he's a Jew. She simply, verse 28, left her water jar and returned in the city. And there, her simple invitation is a simple witness. And in the Bible, the witness of ordinary people is never despised. Three points will frame our study of this passage. A simple invitation, a simple witness, The witness of ordinary people is never despised. Notice first a simple invitation. Look at verse 28. So the woman left her water jar and went away into town and said to the people, Come, see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? They went out of the town and were coming to him. The disciples return just as Jesus and the woman are finishing up their conversation, and they're shocked to see him speaking to a woman, and not just any woman, but a Samaritan woman, and not just any Samaritan woman, but a scandalous Samaritan woman, verse 27, just then his disciples came back. They marveled that he was talking with a woman, but no one said, what do you seek, or why are you talking with her? John tells us, verse 27, they said nothing. And for those who are very familiar with the New Testament, it is shocking to find Peter speechless about anything. Now, perhaps he and the other disciples said nothing because they're tactfully waiting on the woman to leave before they ask their question, as we often do. We don't want to disrupt the situation, so we expect her to leave. But John seems to suggest that there's an unvoiced surprise that just shows their prejudice. They stood there, and they're silently judging, nodding their heads and smiling while pondering, what in the world is Jesus actually doing? And we all know what this is like because we do it all of the time. You nod in agreement even when you don't understand at what is taking place, all the while thinking that someone else that you're talking to is foolish. Regardless of the reason for their silence, one thing is certain. Jesus is not held hostage by their racism or the sexism of his day. He shares the gospel freely with others, irrespective of their racial prejudice, and he did not allow this woman to be devalued or objectified in his ministry. So with all propriety, he interacts with this woman in broad daylight for all to see, modeling for his disciples what they're to do, and he interacts with this woman in a way where he reveals his identity to her. Verse 26, I who speak to you am he. And though the disciples are astonished at what Jesus is doing, John tells us the woman displays true signs of Christian discipleship. She's convinced that this Jesus is no ordinary man. So she went back into town and verse 29 said, Come, see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? 
Friend, many of you might think today that you are incapable of competently or accurately or adequately sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ with your family and friends. You think that you are incapable of sharing the gospel effectively with your colleagues and your acquaintances, your coworkers and your neighbors, especially during the holiday season when everything is supposed to be about the gospel. You might assume that you would not do a good job because you're not a pastor and you don't talk good. You don't think that you would do a good job because you're not on church staff or a seminary trained theologian. But this very text proves that your assumptions are wrong. This woman has lived a scandalous life. It's been an absolute wreck. She's had five husbands and the man she's now shacking up with is not her husband. And now this woman, a brand new Christian with no formal theological training, no evangelistic education, no missionary experience, no gospel track to guide her through a conversation, simply extends a simple gospel invitation. Verse 29, come, see, can this be the Christ? Some of you have been sitting under Christian teaching and preaching for years. For some of you, it's been decades. Others of you have grown up in Christian homes where you've had Christian parents teach you the Christian gospel from your youngest of years. You can't remember anything other than learning the gospel of Jesus Christ. Others of you have been actively reading Christian books and coming here and studying Christian theology on Sunday nights and studying the Christian scriptures with other friends in small groups. You know the gospel. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. You know the gospel from the gospel of John. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. You know the gospel. Whoever has the son has life. Whoever does not have the son of God does not have life. You know the gospel. You know the good news. You are ready to share the gospel good news. And this text teaches you that that sharing of the gospel does not always have to be elaborate or even very long. In fact, it can be quite simple. The Samaritan woman just became a believer. This is a simple invitation, verse 29. Come, see, can this be the Christ? You might be here and you are incapable of debating a renowned atheist. You might not be able to articulate very clearly or at all the differences between universalism, panentheism, and Christianity. You might not be able to describe the differences between a Southern Baptist, a Reformed Baptist, and a General Baptist, or why there are so many Baptists. But you can invite people to see that this is the Christ. You can invite people to come and to hear what you're hearing at church, to come and to study what you've been studying in Bible study or book study, to come and discuss what you've been discussing with other Christians in small group, to come and to see if this Jesus that we're talking about is the Christ. It is one of the reasons that we give you sermon cards and verse-by-verse -verse cards and Sunday night theology cards. Not simply so that you won't forget. We don't want you to forget. Not simply so that you'll be here. We do want you to be here. But so that you would be able to train and get people together and say, would you like to study this with me and learn about this Christ? And then we can discuss, is this an accurate presentation of who this Jesus actually is in Scripture? Her simple invitation is not an invitation that is unlike Jesus himself. If you have your Bible, turn with me to John chapter 1. Jesus, the Christ of God, the Savior of the world, the creator of all things and everyone, has a very simple invitation at the beginning of John's gospel. John chapter 1, verse 35. 
The next day, again, John was standing with two of his disciples, and he looked at Jesus as they walked by, and he said, Behold, the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. Jesus turned and saw them following and said to them, What are you seeking? And they said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? He said to them, Come, and you will see. So they came and saw where he was staying, and they stayed with him that day, for it was about the tenth hour. It's an invitation not unlike that of Jesus, and it's an invitation not unlike that of Philip. Look with me in now verse 43 of chapter 1. The next day, Jesus decided to go to Galilee. He found Philip and said to him, follow me. Now Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, we have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nathanael said to him, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Philip said to him, come and see. Friends, if you're a Christian, this text teaches you that the sharing of the gospel of Jesus Christ does not always have to be elaborate. It can be a very simple invitation because, brothers and sisters, in so many ways, the gospel of Jesus Christ is so simple. One of the challenges for many of us in our evangelism is that we complicate it, and we want to discuss things that are not necessary to actually share the gospel of Jesus Christ with people. You don't need to debate them about all the finer points of why their political theology is wrong. And you don't need to communicate to them why all of the things that they disagree with you about are wrong. You need to simply communicate to them the very simple truth of Jesus Christ. Romans 10, 9. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved no matter what political party you're a part of. And Roman, 1 John chapter 1, verse 9. If you confess your sins, he is faithful and just to forgive you your sins and cleanse you from all unrighteousness, no matter how unrighteously you have been living. And Romans chapter 10, verse 10. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. If you profess that, it does not matter how lonely you are. You will be saved by this Jesus. Brothers and sisters, John 4 teaches you that the sharing of the gospel of Jesus Christ does not always have to be elaborate. You can grow in that skill. We have books for that at the Connection Center for you. That's the display area with books if you walk through that tunnel and turn to the left or what will be your right out there at some point. You can read Rico Tice's book on evangelism. You can read Max Stiles' book on evangelism. You can learn from Isaac Adams when you're discouraged in your evangelism. Those are all good resources for you to learn how to share the gospel more clearly. I would encourage you, if you feel like you can't share the gospel well, to grab one of those resources and learn and read and start sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ very simply. Because in so many ways, you can do it right now. It's one of the things that you can do today when you leave the service. This week, when you're interacting with other people, invite them to come and see, can this be the Christ? Invite them to come with you on Christmas Eve and learn about the Christ. Invite them to come at a time when other people would not normally want to go to church, but they might be willing to go during the holiday season because they love holiday music. Friends, this is one of the reasons that we interview you when you're coming into the membership of this church and ask you a question that everybody in this room, if they're a member, has been asked. Share the gospel of Jesus Christ because we want to help you to be able to share the gospel. And if you've sat through those interviews, you know that we're constantly saying, here's something that you can do to share the gospel just a little more clearly. You might not feel equipped, but you have been equipped and you are prepared to do this. It's a very simple invitation. Note a second, a simple witness. Look with me in verse 34. Jesus said to them, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. 
Do you not say there are yet four months, then comes the harvest? Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. Already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life so that sower and reaper may rejoice together. For here the saying holds true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you did not labor. Others have labored and you have entered into their labor. Like the Samaritan woman, the disciples are preoccupied with physical matters. So verse 31, his disciples were urging him, saying, Rabbi, eat. Probably hungry and doubtless still thirsty, Jesus is still dwelling on the conversation that he just had with the Samaritan woman. So John tells us Jesus used the occasion to teach. And he's teaching his followers, his disciples, something of his own priorities. He has food that they knew nothing about. And just like the Samaritan woman, good disciples that they are, they misunderstand what Jesus is saying. Verse 32. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. So the disciples said to him, has anyone brought him something to eat? Friends, the hand-selected disciples of Jesus have no idea what he's talking about, and that should be an encouragement to you today when you feel like you don't understand. Just like the Samaritan woman, they misunderstand, providing Jesus with an opportunity to speak to them about a deeper truth. They're focused on food, and Jesus is focused on true food. She's focused on worship, and Jesus is focused on true worship. She's focused on water, and Jesus is focused on living water. So verse 34, Jesus said to them, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Now, one of the most helpful things that you can be doing while we're studying John's gospel is actually read and reread John's gospel. And if you're a careful reader of John's gospel, you will see that throughout John's gospel, Jesus makes much of doing God's will and God's work throughout John's gospel. Chapter five, verse 30, if you're taking notes. I can do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge and my judgment is just because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Chapter six, verse 38. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Chapter eight, verse 26. I have much to say to you and much to judge, but he who sent me is true, and I declare the word that I have heard from him. Chapter nine, verse four. We must work the works of him who sent me. Chapter 10, verse 37. If I am not doing the works of my Father, then do not believe me. But if I do them, even though you do not believe me, believe the works that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I am in the Father. Chapter 12, verse 49. For I have not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who sent me has himself given me a commandment, what to say and what to speak. And I know that this commandment is eternal life. What I say, therefore, I say as the Father has told me. Chapter 17, verse 4. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. Jesus makes much of doing God's will and God's work throughout John's gospel. And at the very end of John's gospel, the very last thing that Jesus says is, it is finished. The will of God is realized in obedience, in Jesus' life and in yours. And the will of God sustains life as it did for Jesus, and it will for yours. So in his dealing with the Samaritan woman, Jesus says that he's performing the Father's will. And there is greater sustenance and satisfaction in that for Jesus than any food the disciples can offer him. But the question remains for us, what is the work Jesus came to do? Look again at verse 35. Look, I tell you, 
Lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. Already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life so that sower and reaper may rejoice together. Jesus opens his disciples to just see their, open their eyes and see God's true harvest, sowing gospel seeds for the harvesting of souls. He urges his disciples to open their eyes and see God's true harvest. The approaching Samaritans coming from town now because of the simple invitation of the woman. Eternal life is being offered to people that no one expected it to be offered to. Outsiders, outcasts, people whose lives were a wreck, people who were racially prejudiced against, and they are receiving the eternal life. It's an entirely new age because Jesus is present with opportunities that are altogether new in John's gospel because he is here. The gospel is no longer confined to a particular ethnicity. It's no longer confined to a particular geographical region. Jesus tells his disciples to simply look up and see the fields are white for harvest. This, the taking of the gospel to every kind of people. This, the taking of the gospel to every nation, is the work that Jesus leaves behind for his followers. And Jesus tells us that just as food sustains one's physical body, doing the Father's will gives spiritual strength and vitality to his followers. Do you feel weak in your Christian faith today? Let me ask you, are you invested in the work that Jesus has left behind for his followers? Or are you primarily concerned with your own life and your own work and your own friends? in your own opportunities, in your own things, so that you can have it your way. If not, if you're not invested, I wonder if some of the spiritual apathy that you might feel stems from that. She immediately focuses on others after she comes to faith in Christ. She doesn't ask for somebody to disciple her. She doesn't ask to have everything done her way so she can get her life together. She immediately goes and finds people and tells them, come. See, can this be the Christ? This is the work that Jesus leaves behind for his followers. Whether you're a young kid or one of our senior adults, whether you're a relatively new believer or you've been a believer for decades, and his disciples must be involved in this work because issues of eternity are at stake. This is why Jesus says the work of harvesting souls is not to be done in some spirit of competition, but the important part is that everybody here plays a part in the process. Verse 36, sower and reaper may rejoice together, for here the saying holds true. One sows and another reaps. Every person has a task in the room, whether you're a stay-at-home mom or a college student, a business executive or an entrepreneur. Everybody in this room has a role to play, and nobody's role supersedes anybody else's. Everybody is to be invested in the work. Your job is to just keep sowing seeds. Your job is to just keep sharing and inviting. Your job is to just keep calling people. Come, see, can this be the Christ? And not look at everybody else's job and wonder, why can't I have theirs? Friends, when a sinner comes to faith in Christ, whether you're the one who planted the seed or whether you're one who got to pick the fruit, both laborers, Jesus says, can rejoice together because there is now someone who has eternal life. As many of you know, if you've been here for any length of time, I met Boyd Davis on Saturday, January 17th, 2015, a second reading bookstore just a few blocks from this church. That conversation in the bookstore led to an invitation to church. That invitation to church led Boyd to visit 
And that visit led to another visit. And that visit led to regular attendance. And that regular attendance eventually led him to ask, how could he join the church? And that question led to a series of conversations about what it actually meant to be a Christian. And that eventually led to a gospel conversation where he professed faith in Christ and was baptized and joined this church. But what many people might not know, or maybe have forgotten, is how Boyd's lifelong friend, Bill Miller, prayed for Boyd for decades before I ever met Boyd in Second Reading Bookstore. For decades before Boyd ever professed faith in Christ in his 70s. Jesus says, sower and reaper may rejoice together. For here the saying holds true, one sows and another reaps. And I can assure you today, now that both men are on the other side of this side of life, they left the land of the dying for the land of the living, that Bill Miller is not complaining because his lifelong friend is with him for all of eternity. Jesus said, it is my food to do the Father's will, the will of him who sent me. And by this, he meant that the entirety of his life was to be consumed and energized and fueled by the commandment of God to speak the truth of God to people made in God's image so that there would be a great harvest. You want to help change Westchester? Share the gospel of Jesus Christ. You want to change the world? Invite people to come and see that this is the Christ. And if you feel ill-equipped today, look no further than this woman's testimony who knew basically nothing about the gospel and see that God used it for his glory. Friends, this is the true work of evangelism, witnessing to other people. So Jesus tells them, lift up your eyes and see there is no shortage of people. The world is not overrun with God's seriousness. They need someone to tell them, come to Christ. The fields are the souls of men and women, just like the woman whom Jesus was speaking with at Sychar. Friends, God is already working in your life to put people in your path that you might expose them to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Every single day, you have divine appointments from God with people made in his image. Little people in your home chasing you around the house and people that you meet at the grocery store Neighbors across the street, family member that you only see at Thanksgiving and Christmas. Every single day, God has put people in your path. The fields are white for harvest. God is bringing people into your path. And your job is to just keep inviting them. Come, see, can this be the Christ? The simple witness is a faithful witness in John's gospel. In the sharing of the gospel, there is the sowing and the reaping, the sowing, the speaking of the word, like the sowing of the seed, prepares the harvest for the hearts of men and women. There's a partnership, Jesus teaches us, between preaching and reaping, between witnessing and harvesting, as the fruit that is being gathered is eternal fruit. You see, we're so greatly confused about evangelism in our day. We think that we need better programs and methods. We need charismatic personalities. We need a new way to get people's attention because people are just so consumed with other things. But Jesus says, we just need to keep witnessing to people and inviting them to come and see, can this be the Christ? One of the easiest places for you to invite people to come and see, can this be the Christ, is to the local church. At the local church, the gospel is to be on full display. From the praying and the singing from the presiding to the preaching, in baptism and the Lord's Supper, 
from the call to worship all the way down to the benediction. Friends, this is why we work so hard to teach the gospel in every aspect of our service. Because one of the most evangelistic things that we can do as a church congregation is to have a healthy local church displaying the gospel through the ordinary means of grace. And when people who are not Christians see Christian people gathering from every type of background to sing and pray, to listen and learn in unity, with joy, they see that Christ saves not a room full of individuals, but he makes those individuals a people, a family. This is why one of the most evangelistic things that you can do today if you're not a member of the church is join a local church as a member, serving and giving, coming and participating, helping the church hold up its light. What prevents you from being obedient to Jesus today? What is needed and what is required for real evangelism to take place is actually very simple. Jesus' followers just need to invite people to come and see and to witness to the truth of the word of God, the same words that Jesus spoke to this woman in this passage, verse 13. Everyone who drinks of the water the world has to offer will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that Jesus will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that Jesus will give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. And friends, just like the first disciples, Jesus is sending you, as he said in verse 38, to reap that for which you did not labor, others have labored, and you have entered into their labor. A long succession of prophets and religious leaders leading up to the ministry of Jesus and your presence here today have been laboring so that you would have borne fruit and so that you will continue to bear fruit. Success in reaping, Jesus teaches us, is through a very normal work. Can this be the Christ? The simple invitation is a simple witness. The harvest is bountiful. But notice as the Samaritans re-enter the narrative, a second-hand testimony is no substitute for a personal encounter with Jesus. A simple invitation, a simple witness. Notice third, the witness of ordinary people is never despised. Verse 39. Many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. Now, if you underline in your Bible, just notice how many times the word believe is in here. He told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them. He stayed there two days, and many more believed because of his word. They said to the woman, it is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. The witness of ordinary people is never despised. So John tells us, verse 39, many Samaritans from that town believed in Jesus because of the woman's testimony. John's illustration of the principle Jesus just taught is the arrival of the Samaritans from the village who've heard about Jesus from the Samaritan woman, and he emphasizes their faith by repeating the word believe three times. Verse 39, many Samaritans from that town believed in him. Verse 41, many more believed because of his word. Verse 42, it is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves. The woman's invitation has borne eternal fruit. Friends, your simple witness bears eternal fruit so faithfully, even if you are not reaping fantastically in your life. Those familiar with John's gospel will remember that later Jesus tells his disciples in chapter 15, verse 16, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit. And that is exactly what the Samaritan woman does. Jesus chooses her. She bears fruit, eternal fruit, even though she was an unlikely candidate to introduce the Messiah to anybody. But her simple witness changed the lives of other people. 
Friends, you might think of yourself today as an unlikely candidate to be used by Jesus. This woman is as unlikely as anybody in the Christian scripture. And God used her meaningfully for the expanse of the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is why John tells us that this secondhand testimony is no substitute for a personal encounter with Jesus. Though they came out because of her, after hearing Jesus for themselves, they believe that he's the savior of the world. It's important for us to realize that you are not introducing people to me or any of the elders here. You're not introducing people to our Sunday night theology speakers or Reformed theology or a Baptist denomination. You're not even introducing people to Christ Church Westchester. You are introducing people to Jesus, the Savior of the world. Because as Savior, we see that he does something for us that we cannot do for ourselves. And this time of year reminds us exactly what that is. Jesus came to save us from our sins. You may not know it here this morning. You might not want to believe it, but you are a sinner. The Bible teaches that you are a sinner. You are a sinner that has not been or done what God has required in his word. And your sin has separated you from God. You're unable to have fellowship with God because of your sin. Your sin has so severed your relationship with God that it has actually blinded you to what is good and right and true. You might think that you are an altogether wise and put together person who knows how to navigate the world. And the Bible would say that you're wrong, that you actually don't see clearly, that you don't think rationally because you have not yet trusted in Jesus Christ. And the consequence from all of that blindness and unbelief is that you will go to hell separated from God now and for all of eternity, bearing all of the right consequences for all of your sins that you have committed so willingly your entire life, unless you trust in Jesus, the Savior of the world. Jesus, the Savior, lived a perfectly righteous, obedient life. And later he would substitute himself for you on the cross. He died the death that you deserved. He bore the full weight of God's wrath. He absorbed all of the consequence. In a finite amount of time, he bore an infinite amount of wrath so that you might have eternal joy if you would turn away from your sins and place your faith in this Jesus, trusting in that sin-bearing death and his resurrection on the third day and asking God to make his life your life. That's his obedience, your obedience. His death, your death. That is, his sin-bearing death, satisfactory for you. His resurrection, your resurrection, to everlasting and eternal life. Friends, you can do that today, even here in the midst of a sermon. You can ask God to forgive you of your sins, and God will change you in your seat. And friends, if you're a believer here today, you can be encouraged by that same gospel. If you're not a Christian here, we invite you to trust in this Christ. If you want to find somebody to talk to them after the service, many of them will be standing in this room. I'll be standing at that tunnel. There will be people standing at every door. They would love to open the Bible with you. But Christians in the room, encourage yourself today with that same gospel and let that gospel motivate your Christian evangelism. Part of the reason that we're not motivated is that we see it as a task of drudgery and we fail to remember everything that Christ has done for us. John tells us the words of Jesus create faith to believe the gospel. So verse 40. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them, and they stayed there two days, and many more believed because of his word. Friends, this is why we should never shrink back from sharing the gospel, because that is the very power of gospel ministry. Not in a program, not in an initiative, but in speaking the words of God. And as we do so faithfully, what happened to them will happen now. Verse 42. Verse 42. 
It's no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. They're not disparaging her testimony. They are confirming her testimony. Without her invitation, they would not have been able to come and to learn from this Christ. And friends, that is true evangelism. Individuals hearing the word of God, who are then sharing the word of God with other people who have not yet heard it, a hearing and a knowing that results in a proclaiming and a telling so that there is a believing Verse 42, that this is indeed the Savior of the world. The witness of ordinary people, ordinary people like you and like me and like this woman, is never despised. And the sharing of the word of God is to be esteemed, as the apostle said, because faith comes from hearing and hearing from the word of Christ. The more that Christ Church Westchester's ministry is inviting people to come and seek and this be the Christ, the more that our ministry is about giving testimony to lives changed by the gospel. The more our ministry is about speaking the word of God, the more our conversations are taken up with conversations about what Jesus has done for us and for our salvation, the more fruit we will see sharing boldly, boldly, relentlessly, faithfully so that people would come to Christ. Not because of us, but because we were involved in the sowing and the reaping that Jesus told us to be involved in. Because a simple invitation is a simple witness, and the witness of ordinary people is never despised. And the authority by which it affects change comes from the authority and power of Jesus himself, the Savior of the world. As if to prove that it really is harvest time, John makes clear that the Samaritans display growing faith. They believe unlike other people, without a miracle. They simply hear a testimony, and they trust in Jesus. And now that whoever in John 3, 16 really does mean anyone in the world, even Samaritan people. And how wonderful that in John's gospel, the only time this title, Savior of the World, is used, it's on the lips of people who are outcasts, people who are set aside as different and unworthy, by people who have been seen as less They say, this one is the savior of the world. Come and see, can he be the Christ? It's a proclamation that is upheld in the Lord's Supper. In the Lord's Supper, we see that Christ has done for us and for our salvation in the table, what Jesus has proclaimed here. And when we gather around this table, we are made not only one with Christ, but one with one another. Friends, this is part of the reason we come down together and break off from a common loaf, reminding each other that we have a common salvation because we have had a common need. Everybody in this room is a sinner who has stood in need or stands in need of Jesus Christ. And having this in mind and his great love for us is actually in obedience to his command that we render this almighty God never-ending thanks, never-ending thanks for what he has done for us and for our salvation, never-ending thanks for taking our place on the cross, never-ending thanks for raising from the dead so that we might be justified, so that we might have everlasting life. But if we were to share rightly in this mystery today, to be nourished by this food, we have to remember the dignity of the Lord's table. Brothers and sisters, I call upon us this morning to prepare for the table as the Apostle Paul has called people to prepare Hear his words in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 27. Who therefore eats the bread and drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. 
This is why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. Friends, the benefit is great if with penitent hearts and living faith we come to the Lord's table. But Paul tells us the danger is also great if we approach the Lord's table and we pass over the sins that we're committing that we think no one knows about because God knows. If you are consciously disobeying God's word and actively in sin, harboring bitterness or unforgiveness towards other people in this room or elsewhere, and calling yourself a Christian, the most godly thing that you can do today is stay in your seat. But if you've examined your life and you're a struggler on the way, you're trying to put the sin to death, you're confessing it, you're asking for forgiveness even though you're still struggling with it in your heart, this table is for you. Food that reminds you that Jesus died for you. Once we acknowledge our sins before Almighty God, we see that we are always met with love and mercy. We are forgiven, and therefore we forgive. And reconciled with God and reconciled with one another, we come boldly to this table because, as John says, my little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. That's the goal. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins. That means he appeases God's wrath. And not only for our sins, but for the sins of the whole world. Friends, repentance removes doubt. If you have doubt in your life right now, it might be because you're in active sin. But repentance removes doubt and it gives us assurance and it strengthens our faith to approach the table boldly because of what Christ our Lord has done for us. So let us come with glad hearts. If you've repented of your sins and believed in the gospel of Jesus Christ, the gospel that this church preaches, if you've been baptized if you're a member in good standing of an evangelical church that preaches the same gospel that this church preaches, then we invite you to the table today. But if not, friend, then we encourage you as everyone comes forward to just remain in your seat and to pray and to find me or one of the other pastors or a member of this church following the meal today. In just a moment, there will be two lines. We're gonna ask you to come down front, break off a piece of the bread, take a cup of the juice, go to the outside aisles and down and back to your seat so that it will help traffic flow down here at the front. There will be people distributing the elements in just a few moments. We'll be down here, and what we'll ask you to do is to just come. And as we come, sing with us about what Christ our Lord has done for us. I'm gonna ask you to stand as I pray, and those serving the table will come at this time.